Homes.com knows that when it comes to home shopping, it's never just about the house or condo. It's about the home. And what makes a home is more than just the house or property. It's the location and neighborhood. If you have kids, it's also schools, nearby parks, and transportation options. That's why Homes.com goes above and beyond to bring home shoppers the in-depth information they need to find the right home. And when I say in-depth, I'm talking deep. Each listing features comprehensive information about the neighborhood, complete with a video guide. They also have details about local schools with test scores, state rankings, and student-to-teacher ratio. They even have an agent directory with the sales history of each agent. So when it comes to finding a home, not just a house, this is everything you need to know, all in one place. Homes.com. We've done your homework. My mission is simple, to make you money. I'm here to level the playing field for all investors. There's always a bull market somewhere, and I promise to help you find it. Mad Money starts now. Hey, I'm Kramer. Welcome to Mad Money. Welcome to Kramerica. Other people make friends. I'm just trying to make you a money. My job, not just entertain, put it in context. Call me 1-800-743-CBC. Tweet me at Jim Kramer. Memo to the bears. Beware of an oversold market. It might be a sign that you've overstayed your welcome. Last night, I told you that whenever we have an intraday rebound from a big decline based on pretty much nothing, as what happened yesterday around 140 to 143 p.m., then you could have a chance for a real run the next day. Now, I've staked my career on being able to spot bottoms and tops, and that intraday pivot often signals a real sea change in the market. Sure enough, after a slow start, the Dow rallied 116 points, SME gained 0.59%, and the Nasdaq jumped 0.83%. Yesterday again at 140, we had that kind of dramatic pivot that I've been looking for. When the market was once again cascading down, I mean out and out, capitulation, and then it just stopped. And then it started rebounding like crazy, almost in the close, because none of the prevailing negatives actually changed. Think higher interest rates and soaring price of oil. The rebound was widely dismissed. Hard to take a rally seriously when the fundamentals haven't changed at all, isn't it? But I choose not to dismiss it, because these kinds of against the prevailing grain moves can be very meaningful. They have been many times in my past. A pivot like this is often a precursor to a change in the animal spirits of the market. You just don't know it yet. This morning, we woke up to rates going still higher while oil briefly touched $95 a barrel. Price so close to our, 90, to our $100 target, $95 to $100, 5 bucks, that I hope you took the opportunity to ring the register. Given how closely the price of oil and bond markets are correlated, any profit-taking crude could halt the relentless decline in bond prices that's been causing interest rates to soar for weeks, right as we near the end of the awful month of September. And the profit-taking oil appeared right on time, right in schedule, to bring a smile to bullish traders who were so happy to be within a couple of handfuls of hours before October begins. Normally, that calendar shift shouldn't mean that much, right? I mean, it's almost like hocus-pocus. But I repeatedly told you that September would be terrible. We said it again and again on this show. That's been the seasonal pattern for many years. We were banking on it happening again, although we misjudged just how bad it would be for the bulls. Fortunately, if the seasonal pattern holds up, then a nasty September could pave the way for a bountiful October. 
Historically, the worst things are in September. The better they get in October. And of course, there was that S&P oscillator reading that I mentioned yesterday. That's the paid service that can show you when too many investors are pessimistic as measured by selling pressure. The oscillator starts in no man's land where it tells you next to nothing. But when it rallies to plus five, that means there's too much exuberance and they got to sell because the market's overbought. Mirror image holds on on the downside. When we were minus five coming into the recession, all it did was get worse intraday. That's Tinder trading as positive because a minus five reading on the oscillator means we're due for an oversold bounce. And believe me, it's going to happen again if that's the case when I just looked at the numbers. Sure enough, as I mentioned, oil reversed and reversed hard with West Texas crude falling 2% from yesterday's close. And a few more percent from the aftermarket price I was looking at could be the beginning of something new. Maybe supplies coming on. This stock market is always pretty binary, though, right? There were a whole series of economic numbers this morning that were all over the map. Some showed economic strength, though, that showed economic weakness. But lately, all that mattered is the price of oil. Now, some of that's relative. The price of the pump mattered in the consumer psychology, of course. When it goes lower, we feel better. But some of that's simplistic, meaning money managers who will sell bonds no matter what when they see oil going higher, because oil is a leading indicator of future inflation. Either way, when oil reversed, the bears were caught leaning in the wrong direction. They lost control of the narrative for once, and the whole market suddenly improved. I'm going to give you some examples of the C-trains and how it works. For instance, we all know that tech's been pretty miserable of late. Last night, Micron, a gigantic semiconductor company, reported a good quarter paired with a miserable forecast. Now, you know the analysts have been looking for the exact opposite? They thought there was going to be a bad quarter with a good forecast. The grim guidance normally would have crushed the whole tech sector. I thought it might. However, when I interviewed Micron CEO Sanjay Marotra this morning, I found the situation confusing. Because while he saw his chip business bottoming, he didn't see that that being followed by a big increase in earnings, which is normally what you'd expect, right? In fact, it was the opposite. He expects free cash flow to stay incredibly negative. I know I was very let down by the projected losses. I thought Micron's forecast could put a damper on the entire group, but I saw how bad it was. Instead, and this is the sign of the sea change I'm talking about, Micron's bad guidance was ignored by the rest of its sector. The semis rallied anyway in a remarkably positive display that brought up everything from applied materials, NVIDIA, AMD. It was among the best performing sectors in the entire market. Next example, the auto strike. It's got a lot of people on edge. But for the first time, we saw some flexibility from the UAW. There was a report today that the union is now backed off the 40% wage boost demand. And now they're asking for 30%. That, to me, is a sign that while they want higher pay, they no longer want to wreck their employers in the process, which seemed to be the case just days ago. A sector that's become untouchable finally had something positive come out of it. Later in the show, I'll make a case for... Uh, Maybe be a little cautious of consumer spending, but today the retailers put a pretty good show in a rare break from the relentless slide down, no doubt related to the decline in oil. Now, I think that's ridiculous. Oil going down a couple of bucks won't translate into earnings bump for Macy's or TJX or Costco, for that matter. Still, that's how this market works. It's silly sometimes, but it, well, that's the correlation. Retailers rallied. Of course, this is an easily dismissible run. It's been denigrated repeatedly as nothing more than a short-covering effort all day on our air as the bears ring the register and take some profits. And when you're a short seller, you ring the register by buying stock. I want you to take the opposite approach, though. Sure, when you get a big decline followed by any rally of any significance, it is natural to assume that the whole move is fueled by short covering. As you can imagine, when you see stocks climbing on the thin read of a $2 decline in oil, it seems like there's nothing else to it. But what if I told you that what happened today 
is really very different what's been going on. That approximate 1.40 p.m. bottom yesterday, the intraday bottom, the huge sellers of Texas, they finally finished selling. Maybe it was because they feared October, which historically tends to be pretty bountiful for tech stocks. Maybe they couldn't rationalize selling so low after causing the low themselves. Or maybe they were finally seeing buyers as they smashed stocks down. It really doesn't matter, though. In the end, the stock market is about supply and demand. At that moment in the early afternoon yesterday, the sellers ran out of supply and dumped. And the buyers, they got very voracious. Now, what if this rebound's chimerical? As I told my partners this morning on Squawk in the Street, look, either believe it or no. To me, this is how pretty good rallies start. Almost every rally I've ever followed that I liked started just like this, a pivot up and then a break in one of the most bearish of indicators, the price of something this time crude. Then a sluggish open, it tests the decline, the floor holds, and then you're off the races, putting fury to the hearts of the bears. And that is what happened today. Bottom line, no matter what, there's a fascination of finally being through one of the worst months of the year. As we head into a new month, it tends to perform pretty darn well when it comes in with a full head of bear steam. That's right. The bears are fueling this one. So we bought a bunch of stocks this morning for the Travel Trust. If you remember the club, you would know it and you'd be proud. Uh, just like the thesis I laid out here, all I can say is so far so good. I like the odds going into a month that despite a couple of crashes has been very, very good for the bulls. Allen in Florida. Allen. Hi, thanks for taking my call. I'm a first time caller. Excellent, um, Alan. How can I help? You know, you know, Jim, I've been trading for over 50 years, I hate to admit. And I've seen companies buy back stock responsibly. I've seen other companies destroy their, themselves by buying back stock. Mm-hmm. But BKNG is something I don't understand. They have unbelievable earnings. They have bought back stock with all of their earnings. But in addition, they have gone into debt. In the last year, they've gone from $8.5 billion to $13.7. In the next quarter, probably over $15 billion in debt buying back stock. And their shareholders' equity in the last two years has plummeted from $8 billion to a negative number. Am, am I missing something, or is this a recipe for disaster? Well, I don't think it's disaster, because I think the company's business is very good, and Glenn Fogel is a seasoned operator I've known for a long time. I don't like what you just described, though. That makes no sense whatsoever. You just don't do that. And we're going to have Glenn on. I'm going to ask Glenn to come on and explain that, because you, you deserve that. After 50 years, you deserve that. And I thank you for your, your confidence in calling on me, since you're completely a pro, raising a very good question. How about we go to Zach? In Texas, Mr. Zach. Mr. Jimmy, how's it going, man? Not bad, you know, kind of hanging in there. What's going on with you? Oh, man, hey, I'm just getting ready for that Packers game tonight. Go Pack, go. Um, yeah, I don't know. Is Watson going to play? I mean, is uh, AJ back? Watson's playing. Watson's he is. playing. Watson's playing? Then you're going to win. Playing. You're going to win. That's it. Oh, I know you're going to win. My, my man, Mr. Jimmy, Mr. New York City. All right, man, here, I got, I got, a, I got a big dilemma going on. Okay. So I, I invested... And a lot of shares last year in Disney stock. I want to say around the 140 price range. Ahead, what I'm do sorry. I do from here? All right. I, now, I had this discussion with Jeff Marks today for the, uh, for the club. And I said, you know what? I think the rally is going to start in October. Maybe we buy some Disney. And he said, maybe not. No, I didn't say anything. Right. It may to be seen whether or not yesterday's reversal has staying power, but the thought of coming into one of the best months of the year full of bear sentiment, ah, that ain't cutting it here. Man, buddy, tonight 
Workdays holding its annual user conference, Workday Rising in San Francisco. And after host of announcements, the stock still plummeted today. At its worst day since March 2020, what a bummer. Is today more, was that warranted? I mean, come on, or was an overreaction? Why don't we speak to the co-CEOs? Then FinTech faltered the last couple of years and still not back in style on Wall Street. So what is in the segment? I've got it. And train technology, yeah, TT, it's looking to be the king of climate. So is that the thesis investors should focus on going forward? I'm getting an update from the company's top brass. How about those questions? Weren't they terrific? Stable Kramer. Don't miss a second of Mad Money. Follow at Jim Kramer on Twitter. Have a question? Tweet Kramer. Hashtag Mad Tweets. Send Jim an email to madmoney at CNBC.com or give us a call at 1-800-743-CNBC. Miss something? Head to madmoney.cnbc.com. Electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Fact. Running a business is not getting easier on your wallet. With higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. Also a fact. Smart businesses are reducing costs and headaches by graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required. Accessed from anywhere. You can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. See how you'll profit with NetSuite, and then you can think of all the ways you could be spending the money you save. Company retreat in Malibu, anyone? By popular demand, NetSuite is offering a -a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to NetSuite.com to start saving. Okay, everybody was talking about today, what the heck just happened to the stock of Workday? It's the cloud software company, helps businesses with human capital management and financial planning. How did this stock plunge more than 8%, particularly because tech had a nice reversal? Okay, last night Workday held its financial analyst meeting alongside their big Workday Rising user conference. They rolled out some three-year financial projections. Wall Street didn't like them. If you looked at these targets in a vacuum, I think they're terrific. Tons of companies would kill for these numbers. But everything in this business, as you know, is relative and relative to uh, Workday's previous guidance. Some of these new forecasts were incrementally worse. For example, rather than growing subscription revenue by 20% plus, they're now talking about growth in the uh, rate in the high teens. That's not what anybody wanted to hear, hence why the stock got obliterated. Unfortunately, the forecast overshadowed what I thought was a lot of very interesting AI-related product announcements we got this week. So, what do we do with Workday here? Let's check in with Daniel Bushry. He's the co-founder, chairman, and uh, co-CEO of Workday. And Carl Eschenbach is co-CEO to get a better read on the situation. Gentlemen, welcome back to Man Money. Hi, Jim. 
Hey, How Jim. are you? All right, guys, let's go right to it. I, this was, I can't ignore the fact, Neil, that it was the, the worst day in quite a few years for Workday stock uh, in response to your new three-year financial targets. So why don't you tell us some of the, what it was incrementally worse, no more than that. What are some of the main assumptions that made you feel like you had to guide a little bit lower? Well, I'll start by yeah. saying that, uh, you know, we're all facing an uncertain economy and we just wanted to put forth projections that we believed were achievable and, and dealing with this uncertainty. And Carl can get into more of the detail. Yeah. So first of all, how you doing, Jim? We're, we're, we're proud to be here from our live on the floor at our user conference called Rising. We have more than 15,000 people here with us this year. It's more than double, Neil, than what we had last year in Orlando. Uh, and we rolled out a whole bunch of new technologies. There's lots of partners, lots of customers. There's a lot of energy. And to your question, uh, specifically yesterday, we did have our financial analyst day, and we shared with them a three-year, what we call a three-year durable model. And that three years shows us growing the business at 17 to 19% over the next three years. And to put that in perspective, Jim, this year alone, we're growing 18% on the top line. So we're saying even as we scale from seven to $10 billion and beyond, we're gonna continue to grow at the similar rate that we're growing this year. And by the way, it's a very profitable business. And if you look at what we've achieved so far this year, Jim, at the end of Q2, we actually raised our guidance both on the top line and the bottom line as we headed into the second half of the year because we see strong momentum and demand for our products and technologies. Well, now, Carl, I think a lot of people don't realize when you have a trade show like uh, Workday Rising, these are not just for show. You are actually winning some business. Now, I can't ask you to give up customers' names, but what are the verticals that you feel like you've really made great inroads on in the last 48 hours? Yeah, well, as you know, Jim, we do go to market and we focus on specific industries and verticals. Some of our most exciting verticals is financial services, healthcare, government, state and local ed, uh, state and local government's a big driver for us, um, financial services, and many others. So we, we definitely have a strong, robust business, and it's very diverse across many industries. And here this week, we've rolled out a whole bunch of new solutions, both on the HR side and the, uh, you know, on the finance side for those verticals. And I can tell you, the excitement and energy is off the charts here in San Francisco this week. Well, I think it's true. And I got to tell you, and you know, one of the things, you were the first person to say this, and I read mean all about AI. You were the first person to say, listen, it's expensive up front. You got to understand, this is not a cheap thing. And the reason why, you know, it, it's really hard to do is, is that you, there's a hit to be, at the beginning. But you also explained the payback. But could you just explain why when, what people should start understanding with AI is that there is a cost associated to it that's higher than what normal business is? Well, so, so just taking a step back, I, I think AI is as important and maybe as disruptive as the cloud was. You know, Workday was a company born in the cloud, and I think AI is that scale of importance from an innovation perspective. Different than the cloud, these, these uh, large language models that AI are uh, based on, they require massive amounts of, of compute to build the models and train the models. And so there's an upfront cost that we all just have to recognize. I think those costs will come down over time, but it's a heavy investment. Workday is making those investments. And the reason we're making those investments is we think these technologies will bring huge competitive advantage to our customers both in terms of better automation, better insight. We're not trying to replace people, we're trying to augment what people do in a, in a very thoughtful, ethical way. 
so this technology is really powerful, but it is expensive. Okay, so Carl, what is the co-pilot advantage of your AI and ML for managers that you speak to? Yeah, well, listen, we have a great co-pilot story uh, for, is driven by Gen AI for both HR and finance. We showcased a number of these uh, innovations yesterday during our keynote. We called our innovation to keynote. And I think we are going to make our, our managers much more effective and efficient. For example, you no longer have to write a job description. You no longer have to write, if you will, a career growth plan. That will all be automated for managers and reducing their time right, of, from writing to actually having those important conversations with their employees. Well, okay, that's a great point because, Anil, you're talking about you, uh, Workday users create 30 million job descriptions. Now, that it, you could waste days of time. And how much, to, how much can you get that done with AI and ML? You know, I think you can take hours. A process hours. takes hours to take it down to seconds to minutes. It's massive. And it's, and it's not the work that people like doing. They don't like writing job descriptions. If the AI can write it for you, why not? It frees you up to do more important work. Now, I, I do love, I always have take on, and, and Neil's probably sick of me saying, but I think universities, which have had just an abysmal record of trying to keep tuitions down, horrendous, that you are the only force that I have ever seen that is actually driving the cost of tuition down, and you keep winning colleges. What are you doing right that makes it so tuitions less? Well, yeah. so uh, on the product side, we've been focused on higher education almost since day one, and it goes back to my co-founder, Dave Duffield. He's been involved with building systems for higher education since the late 60s, early 70s. We started Workday. The first thing we did was make sure that the HR and financial products, which do cut costs relative to other technologies, bring down the cost. But then we built a student system specifically for higher ed that is, is both dramatically better use uh, use for the for the uh, students and administrators, but also at a much lower cost. See, I think that's amazing, and it's so important uh, because it's going to cost $100,000 a year to go to college. That's not right. we got to stop that. Look, I want to thank both these gentlemen. And you heard what he said about the, 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 the slowing growth rate is not really going slower, okay? It's a new benchmark. It's a good benchmark. People kill for it. Carl Eschenbach is the co-CEO of Workday. And Neil Bushry is the co-founder, chairman, and co-CEO of Workday. And I hope he still comes on the show. Man Money's back after the break. Coming up, as fintech fumbles, two big payment players look mightier than ever. Do MasterCard and Visa hold the best hand? Find out next. When you're hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging to connect with candidates faster. Plus, 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. Join more than three and a half million businesses worldwide that use Indeed. Listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash madmoney. Just go to Indeed.com slash madmoney right now and support this show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash madmoney. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. 
As we approach the one-year anniversary of the major market bottom on October 13th, I think it's worth looking back on what's changed and what didn't over the last 12 months. So many stocks have been crushed in 2022, but they've, some of them rebounded like crazy from the lows, but not all of them. Take financial technology, the fintechs for short. These were some of the hottest stocks on earth in 2020 and 2021 before becoming horrific losers in 2022. But while some of them have rebounded substantially from the lows, they're still way, way, way off their highs. PayPal and Block, the artist formerly known as Square, are both down significantly over the past year, each still off more than 80% from their highs in 2021. Many of the fintech disruptors that came public during the pandemic year IPO, boom, well, they've rebounded off their lows, but it's very hard to say that they're doing well. Take a firm. That's that buy now, pay later pioneer. You know, it's more than double from its lows last year. But it's still down 88% from its peak in 2021. Upstart's more than double from its lows this May, yet it's still off 93% from its peak. And it's only up slightly from where it came public in 2020. Robinhood, with its disruptive brokerage app, has been flatlining around 10 bucks for the past year and a half. It's still down 89% from its post-IPO peak. Now, there are some exceptions. SoFi Technology, the digital bank that's easily my favorite in the group, has seen its stock fall from 4 bucks and change last December to 11.70 in its highs in July, although it's been crushed over the past couple of months. It's pulled back to 7 and change. Kind of interesting here. By contrast, when you look at the original fintech companies, I'm talking Visa and MasterCard. They've been practically unstoppable. Both stocks hitting new 52-week highs earlier this month, although now they pull back maybe 5 to 7% from those uh, levels thanks to the market-wide meltdown. Boy, are they getting attractive. Still, Visa's up 11% for the year. MasterCard's up 15%. So well run. You could have just sat on both stocks for the last few years, and you'd had nice wins. My chapel starts to own them for a little bit. We made some money. Should have held on. Should have, would have, could have. bad news, though. So you got to ask yourself, why are Visa and MasterCard doing so well when every other fintech stock is light years away from its all-time high? Is this the revenge of tried and true tech? Let's start with the obvious. When the growth stock bubble popped nearly two years ago, Wall Street abandoned unprofitable growth at all cost stories and embraced companies with actual earnings. Visa and MasterCard are mature companies that make tons of money with earnings growth in the low to mid-teens. They're what we call senior growth stories. Actually, they're uh, really they're the archetype. The new fintechs were only ever junior growth stories, and that was before the growth withered. A firm's deeply unprofitable and will remain that way for the foreseeable future. Upstart actually turned a profit from 2020 through 2022. Then they got into the lending business just as the Fed started raising interest rates relentlessly. So they're expected to lose money this year. Robinhood might be on the verge of producing positive earnings, although even if they get there, we're talking about a minuscule number. Now, PayPal and Block are a little more controversial, a little bit different. Both have been profitable for years. While they each experienced major earnings shrinkage in 2022, they're expected to see a meaningful recovery this year, followed by more good numbers next year. How come? How come PayPal and Block can't seem to get the group back? It's not that the stocks are expensive. They used to be, but now their valuations are much more reasonable. Both cheaper than Visa and MasterCard. You have to ask why they're cheaper, and I think I know the answer. PayPal and Block traded at a discount because many investors don't believe they can make their numbers. On the other hand, people are willing to pay up for Visa and MasterCard because they know these are the most reliable of stocks. And here's a word you don't hear much when it comes to fintech. They are consistent. Which brings me to the real issue for the fintech stocks. As since late last summer, most money managers assumed we were heading to recession, right? That was that inverted yield curve nonsense I told you not to worry about. And that changed in late spring. But for the last couple of months, the recession worries have resurfaced. 
We're seeing signs the economy is slowing and the Fed still has more to do fighting inflation, which likely means more pain. The house of pain. In short, people expect the economy to get worse, and most investors simply don't know how the newer fintech plays will hold up during a slowdown. I don't know either. Of course, it's not like a recession would be good news for Visa or MasterCard. There would be less spending, so they'd make less money from transactions on their payment networks. I think that's the main reason why both stocks have been clobbered in the past few weeks. But unlike a firm or upstart, we know exactly what a recession means for Visa and MasterCard. These two companies are almost as old as I am. They've seen many recessions. During the Great Recession, they both defined. MasterCard grew sales and earnings every year from 2006 to 2010. That is incredible. And every year since the pandemic, until the pandemic hit in 2020. Visa came public in the middle of the financial crisis in March 2008, largest IPO in history at that time. And they also grew sales and earnings in 2009-2010. What a consistent group of companies. Remember, this was during the worst economy since the Depression? That means there's only so bad, so many bad things can really get these stocks down in a slowdown. They're good companies. By contrast, SoFi was founded in 2011, a firm in upstart 2012, Robinhood 2013. PayPal's older, but it was buried with an eBay during the financial crisis. Square was founded in 2009, near the end of the chaos. So you know what? We just don't know how well their business models work in a rapidly deteriorating economy. And based on the way their stocks are trading, nobody seems to be too eager to find out. There's one more thing that separates Visa and MasterCard from most of the newly minted fintechs, and it's the most important thing of all. Neither of them has credit risk. See, they run payment networks. They don't lend people money. The banks do that. But so far, it's credit risk. The firm and upstart have credit risk. They like to try to offload their loans by turning them uh, into securities and selling them off. But that doesn't work when the market for this stuff freezes up, which often happens when rates are moving too quickly in one direction. Block is credit risk, too, as they make loans to their small business customers. Overall, though, money managers know the economy is getting worse, and they don't want to stick around to find out what the fintechs will do. So here's the bottom line. Visa and MasterCard hit new highs early this month because they're consistent operators with healthy earnings growth, and it's very easy to understand what happens to them in a recession because both companies have been through so many. The newer fintechs, though, are mostly unprofitable question marks, which is why their stocks are still a long, long, long way from their old highs. And I don't see them getting back to those old highs anytime soon. Wally in North Carolina. Wally. Hey, Jim. Booyah. Booyah, my friend. What's going on? Well, first of all, thank you for taking my call. Of course. Of course. What's going on? Let's go to work. I have been a fan of yours for many years. I appreciate the information you give us each night. That's what I'm trying to do. Thank you a substantial investment in Bank of America, and I believe it's still in your portfolio. It's down more than 6% from a high of 29.43 this month, along with all the other stocks. It closed today up 28 cents. My question to you is, can I buy more at this low price, sell or hold? Okay, um, it's a very difficult situation because the bank is so cheap. I can't tell you that, to sell it by any means. Can I tell you to buy more? No, because the bank stocks are, uh, are really awful. So my suggestion, thank you for the kind words, you got to hold that one. Just hold Bank of America. And let's go to Bob in Florida. Bob. Hey, Professor Chill, how are you doing today? Thanks for taking I'm my doing call. quite well. Thank you. What's happening? Awesome, awesome. Glad to hear. Uh, yeah, I just had a question on this ticker especially with cryptocurrency derivatives and futures coming to market sooner rather than later. Uh, what do you think of CME stock right here? 
CME, that, that is a terrific way to play it without a lot of risk. I really think it's great. It's undervalued. People don't talk about it much. Uh, I think it's got a good yield. I don't understand why people don't talk more about that. That is just a very good company. And thank you for bringing it to our, our viewers' attention. All right, the newer cohort of fintechs are full of question marks, but the same can't be said about Visa MasterCard, which are long-term stalwarts that have been hitting 52-week highs this month. Much more made money, including my students with train technologies. With the government authorizing spending for energy efficiency in a few of the big recent bills passed in Washington, could this be a major benefit for a company like Train? I'm talking to CEO. Then is the Fed burning down the village just to save it? I'm highlighting a piece of research I saw today that, that, that I think could give us a real sense of what lies ahead for the Fed. You do not want to miss it. And of course, all our calls rapid fire in tonight's edition of the Lightning Round. So stay with Kramer. hand-wringing about interest rates and the macro environment, sometimes I like to step back and focus on individual companies with strong secular growth stories. The ones that could work even are slow, and the ones that are not going to slow down because rates are higher. Companies like Train Technologies. It's a major player in the heating, ventilation, and air conditioning space. Big refrigerated trailer business on the side. Despite worries about rising interest rates hurting their business, the company keeps putting up Really terrific numbers, including last month, where they also raised their full-year forecast. So how does Train do it? In part, it's because they make energy-efficient climate control systems that allow corporate customers to lower their carbon footprint and their electric bill. It's a good investment no matter what, especially with some of the climate-related goodies in the so-called Inflation Reduction Act, although we'll probably do pretty well without it. Uh, The stock's already up more than 21% for the year. Can it keep climbing? Let's dig deeper with Dave Regneri. He's the chairman and CEO of Train Technologies to learn more about the company. Mr. Regneri, welcome back to Man Money. Hey, Jim. Thanks for having me back. I'm glad to be back on your show. Oh, I am glad that you're here. You know what? A lot of people seem to almost want to worry about those who don't believe in climate change and they don't come out and say it. And they just say, well, earnings per share, earnings per share. You talk about decarbonization as being first good for the world, but also good for the bottom line for shareholders. You're not afraid to alienate those who don't believe No, Jim, look, first of all, if you think about heating and cooling of buildings, it represents about 15 percent of all greenhouse gas. And then if you think about food waste, it represents another 10 percent. So where the industry that we play in has 25 percent of greenhouse gas and we've developed solutions that have fantastic paybacks. So I always say it's green for green. So we have solutions that really make the world a better place from a decarbonization standpoint. We have a, what we call a thermal management system okay. where it's able to, if you think about a conventional building and how you used to heat and cool, you had right. a heating side, we call that a boiler, you have a cooling side, we'd call that a chiller. They worked independently. We combined them into one system. And when you combine them into one system and it works simultaneous for simultaneous heating and cooling, it's three to four times more efficient than the conventional way of thinking, three to four times. The paybacks on these systems, in many cases, it depends on what you're replacing, they could be sub three years. So it is green, it's green for the environment, but it also has a very nice payback for the customer. All right, well, I, when I look at, uh, we mentioned the government programs, this elementary and secondary school emergency relief, I mean, these are, they're mandated. You must be getting your fair share of that. Yeah, the ESSER funding in the United States, it's been with us for about two years. It's got another two years to go, so it's about halfway through. Uh, the, the, we've always been strong in the education vertical with our direct sales force and being able to call on directly to school superintendents. Uh, I believe in the, in the in year-to-date through the second quarter, 
our revenue is up close to 30% in that vertical. And if you look at it on a two-year stack, our revenue is up close to 60%. I know. And a lot of times people need to understand, the analysts understand, you have to look at a lot of things in two-year stack with you. The residential two-year stack, the the thermal two-year stack, because if you don't, it looks like you're having a down year, but that's not fair. Yeah, it's so true, especially when you start looking at order rates. Our backlog at the end of the second quarter was close to $7 billion. That's that's two to three times, two and a half times more than those. Explain how much, therefore, of the year's already made. Well, I mean, the backlog will burn through the year. But, you know, it, it really is about absolute numbers. And if you look at our order rates, you could see that, you know, our order rate, I'll give you an example. Our commercial HVAC business in the second quarter, we were up high teens in the Americas. We were up high, high teens in Europe. We were up over 40 percent in China or in Asia. And our book to bill in the total business was 101 percent. That's, that's so, I mean, incredible. that gives you an example of the magnitude of the numbers we're talking about. Now, uh we don't. I want to talk about Thermo King because Thermo King has been a kick around. It's been a football business. It's been a lot of different outfits. It's finally found the right home. Uh, that's another one where there was a big jump in truck and then comes down. But it's a, if you smooth it out, it's a very consistent business. It's a great business. I had the opportunity to run that business for about four years in my career, so I know it very well. It's a, it's a great dealer network we have. We have so much innovation that's going on in that business. That's another business where it's really it's going to be disruptive technology that we're going to deploy. It's the electrification of our units. And traditionally, they have diesel engines in them. We're moving that to an electric, all-electric system. It's exciting. The way we're able to, I was over in Galway, where we have a big manufacturing location in Ireland. And um, the way the engineers now look at it, they're looking at the, as the truck goes down the road, it's really, where is their power that I could harness? And you think about braking, and we have some great technology there. We're able to retake the, the power that would be lost during braking and recharge our batteries. So very excited about where we're going there. It's a fantastic business, and, uh, well, and we love it as part of our portfolio. Are there younger people who understand and can therefore, I mean, so many younger people want to do something with the environment. Maybe the smartest thing you could do is get an engineering degree and work for training. <laughs> well, we're always looking for great talent. So okay. if you're interested in applying, please, uh, please well, contact us. it's just important because I think that you, like, you know what it is, Jim? It's our purpose, right? Our purpose right. Is, to, is to challenge what's possible and innovate for a sustainable world. And I want all 40,000 plus of our employees to get out of bed every day and know that they're going to make this world a better place for the next generations. And that's our mindset. And if you look at the solutions we've been able to develop in the last three years, the last five years, it's really incredible what we've been able to do. Bullock, I'm going to congratulate you in these numbers. Again, I want people to understand you have to look at a, what's known as a stack. You have to, can't just look at year over year because you may actually think that, for instance, residential is not doing that good. Or whatever. All nonsense. It's a really consistent ramp, and the ramp is improving and getting faster. Dave Rignery is the chairman and CEO of Train Technology TT, which you know we love, and Mad Money's back here to the break. Coming up, Kramer takes your calls, and the sky is the limit. It's a fast fire lightning round. Next.
before we get to the lightning round, there's something really exciting that I want to share with you. The reason it's so special is because it's just for you, our Mad Money viewers. Now, look, you, I, I know you always hear me talking about the community that is the CNBC Investing Club. For just a few days more, I'm going to share a little taste of the work that I do with Jeff Marks during the day, and it's going to be a bargain for you. Today in our online morning meeting, for instance, that's at 1020 a.m., and it's exclusive for club members, the market was drifting toward what we said would be a successful retest. So what did we do? We said it was time to buy. We bought three names that we really like. It was a tech, a household product company, and an industrial. Sweet. We read the tape, took action real time, got it right, told you to do it ahead of us, of course. Now, I think this stuff is so pertinent to your daily life, especially if you're watching this show, that I think you got to be educated to it. you got to be a better investor, and this is what happens if you join the club. So I'm going to do something very simple. I'm just going to say, look, enjoy. this is only like a couple more days of this thing. Grab your phone, open your camera, point it to the QR code, or go to cnbc.com slash Jim Offer. And now it is time. So for the Lightbrokers, Ben Swerver, it's all over. the Bible. Let's play this out. And then the lightning round is over. Are you ready? Ski, Daddy, time for the lightning round. I'm going to start with William in California. William. Hey, Jim. How are you today? I am, William, I am doing well. I came out hot today. What's going on? I need some help with my stock, Astronics. Well, you know, Astronics is, Astronics is in aerospace, and right now Boeing is pulling them all down. I wore a Boeing hat and shirt this weekend. absolutely did nothing. I think the Boeing numbers have to come down because people are worried about airlines now. So after that, it's time to do some buying, but not yet. I would hold on to Astronics. Let's go to Lewis in Texas. Lewis. Hello, Mr. Kramer. Lewis, uh, what's up? I have, a, I have a rising stock that I've held for many years. And now for several years now, it's stayed in the red. Well, you know why? Because it hasn't been that well run. I mean, I know T-Mobile's good, but I mean, T-Mobile's had the run of the joint. But that's in part because these guys aren't good enough. And I think that it's time to start thinking about, I don't know. I mean, if I were running that, if I were on the board of directors, let me just say, let's say this. I would have to do some hard think about what's going on. Bjorn in Washington. Bjorn. Booyah, Jim. Booyah. Hats off to your, to your birds. Thank you. I appreciate that. What's up? Yeah. Um, I'm thinking about arm. Uh, does it have legs? Okay, you buy some arm now and you buy some arm below 50. I think Renee Haas is terrific. I like the company very much. I do think the tech rally is going to reignite, and that is a very good stock to own. I like the fact that they're partners with NVIDIA. Let's go to Kyle in Florida. Kyle. Booyah, Jimmy C, long time, first time. Thanks for taking um, my call. I'm glad you called. What's going on? Looking at a biotech company down big off earnings misses and a recent review, but it's come back multiple times from this level and lower. Do you have any bullish feelings towards Novavax? None whatsoever. Let's go to let's go to Dan in Arizona. Dan. Hey, Jim. I've been working on expanding my knowledge to become a smarter investor, and among my resources are CNBC and your show. So thanks for having oh, me on. thank you. Thank you. Uh, my question, GE Healthcare, the fundamentals. It's finally happening. The sellers have wised up. Maybe they joined the club. The knucklehead sellers who have no idea how good this company is, just check out in Japan. You have to have so many MRIs in order to get these anti-Alzheimer's drugs. It's all going to be right to the bottom line of GE Healthcare. The stock is a buy. It's coming back. It looks like it's headed to 75. Hunter in Florida. Hunter. Booyah, Jimmy Chill. Oh, how are you? Very well, sir, yourself. Not bad, thank you. Absolutely. Uh, here with my buddy, Bud Sean. We're wondering, on a 12-month forecast for Marvell, should I add to it, 
sell it. Or I like. Look, I think I Matt Murphy is doing a terrific job. I think they've got a tremendous product. Uh, they bought this optical product. It is killer. Matt is a tough competitor, and the answer is. Ah. Now we're going to Jonathan, Pennsylvania. Jonathan. We are Jim. Love Go birds. Club. Oh, thank you. Thank you very much. Okay. I love your self-deprecating humor when you joke about your. Well, look, I'm a, I'm a masochist. What can I say? I've been since I was one years old, and they left me in the playpen. What's going on? Me too. I. I can understand you perfectly, you know? I mean, after Eagles win, you, you go home, you eat a hoogie, drink some water, right? Yeah, well, you know, and after I get some gas and I have a soft pretzel, and usually on Valentine's Day, but watch the payment. We have a lot of strange words that we say because we're largely incoherent. And Merry Christmas you to go. you. All right. There you go. Got that Thanks for all you do. <laughs> Thanks for the laugh. Hey, you've had the, the GlaxoSmithKline CEO on your show. He's very impressive. Dame Wamsley? She's done, I'm telling you, they have done so many right things in vaccines since she was on last. I applaud her. Oh, man, we got to get cut off in that, ladies and gentlemen, the conclusion of the lightning round. Coming up, is low unemployment not all it's cracked up to be? Americans are working, but the deck may still be stacked. More next. We know the Fed's closely watching employment to figure out its next move. It's a metric that tells them when to stop bringing the pain. The house of pain. Remember, the Fed's got a dual mandate. When business is bad and unemployment's high, they cut rates to stimulate the economy. When business is strong, jobs are plentiful, and inflation is persistent, the Fed has to raise interest rates, slamming the brakes on the whole shebang. Right now, we're in a ladder situation, which is why j Powell's hiked rates so relentlessly. But what if there's more subtly involving the involved in just steering the economy between the silver of high unemployment and the crypticism of high inflation. For example, a situation where the Fed keeps raising rates because employment remains strong, even if there's damage, rot, you would say, underneath the economy, that could end up having severe consequences for people without doing much to beat inflation. This morning, Matthew Boss, the excellent retail analyst from J.P. Morgan, laid out a scenario that I found quite disturbing, frankly. He talks about mounting headwinds versus the more terrific pre-COVID period of 2019. Boss first points out that unemployment has risen to an 18-month high of 3.8%. It's now higher than the average jobless rate in 2019. Now, it is still insanely low by historical standards. So the Fed has a lot of leeway to keep tightening, and I think it'll keep using it. But what if you look deeper? The personal savings rate is now more than 500 basis points below where it was in 2019. Boss notes that consumer wallet outflows for the big five essential spending buckets, food, housing, utilities, gas, and health care, now account for 64.6% of total expenditures, up 90 basis points from 2019. Or to look at it another way, essential expenditures collectively stand plus 17% versus 2019, as a result of the 43-year peak in inflation. Meanwhile, credit card rates are now 20.7% versus 15.1% back then. Mortgage rates are 7.2% versus 3.9% in 2019. Plus, after a multi-year moratorium on student loan repayments, those are suddenly about to come back, and they take even more away from the average person's household budget. Now, these numbers show a marked deterioration in purchasing power for the vast majority of our population. This is happening despite the lack of massive layoffs or mass bankruptcies. Of course, Boss is a retail analyst. He's simply explaining why he expects consumers to trade down more aggressively, something that could benefit off-price chains like TJX, which we own big for the charitable trust. But when I look at his work, 
I worry that the Fed may not see these issues that are hurting everybody except the rich. Sure, you could argue that the real culprit here is inflation. We're spending, we're spending more on this stuff because the cost of living is skyrocketing. True. Which means the Fed needs to keep raising rates until inflation is dead. True. But you could also argue that the Fed may have already won and doesn't realize it yet, especially when you consider the dramatic rise in long-term interest rates. It's really hurt anyone who wants to borrow money. When I read these figures, I shudder. What if the Fed's looking at unemployment and unemployment only and not looking at the gigantic increase in the cost of living that's taking up a much larger part of the average person's budget? What if we have an economy where spending ultimately collapses while the Fed's still raising rates because the unemployment rates remains below 4%? Now, see, I fear at these rates the Fed may actually be burning down the village in order to save it. And you know, I have tremendous respect for Mr. Powell and think he's done a fantastic job. Maybe we can say that three months from now, this will all be so obvious that the Fed won't have to do anything more about, let's say, maybe one more tightening, especially as the long-term Treasury yields continue to soar, which seems pretty likely to me. I suspect this story is too big for them to miss. But, man, I, I sure hope the Fed actually sits down and reads the Matt Boss piece. It might make them a little less strident particularly some of these pop-offs who are really starting to bug me on the Federal Reserve. Even with low unemployment, the diminishing spending power of the average consumer might be enough for the Fed to win its war on inflation very soon without doing much else to make it happen. I like to say there's always a bull market somewhere. I promise I'll find it just for you right here on Mid Monday. I'm Jim Cramer. See you tomorrow. Last call starts now. All opinions expressed by Jim Cramer on this podcast are solely Cramer's opinions and do not reflect the opinions of CNBC, NBC Universal, or their parent company or affiliates, and may have been previously disseminated by Cramer on television, radio, internet, or another medium. You should not treat any opinion expressed by Jim Cramer as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of his opinion. Cramer's opinions are based upon information he considers reliable, but neither CNBC nor its affiliates and or subsidiaries warn its completeness or accuracy, and it should not be relied upon as such. To view the full Mad Money Disclaimer, please visit cnbc.com forward slash Disclaimer. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts.